Amen. Thanks, Jeff. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's good to see all of you, and it's good to have those of you who are watching from home join us. We, uh, we're grateful. Our scripture reading this morning comes from a familiar passage. Actually, we're just going to continue where we were last week in Luke chapter 1, piecing together this encounter that Mary has with the angel Gabriel. It's one of the fundamental holy memories of our faith, uh, one of the great stories that informs what it means to follow Jesus. And so let's read together from this text. Uh, these few short verses. We're really going to focus on verses 34 through 38, uh, but for context's sake, we want to pick up the verses before. So beginning in verse 26, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Strange, isn't it, that, excuse me, the salvation of the world will be accomplished in a birth, not a battle. Not a conclave, a birth. To us, a son is given, you'll see. To us, a child is born. And the saving of the world would be upon his shoulders, Isaiah the prophet said. Now let me remind you one more time. In the Bible, hope for the world from the beginning to the end, all throughout the scriptures, was set upon the shoulders of a singular person. We talked about him for the week's leading up to Advent, the serpent crusher, the sin bearer of Isaiah 52 and 53, the cloud rider of Daniel chapter 7, the new world bringer. There's only one Savior, and I have great news this morning. It's not you. It's not me. It is this child born to this girl, Mary, in Bethlehem so many years ago. He was the long-awaited one, the child king. And in Isaiah 9... As we've been meditating together on that passage for this Advent season, it says that his name is wonderful. But the original language, in in the original language, it's really just his name is wonder. And that word is somewhat of a technical term in the Bible for the miracles that God performed in bringing his people out of Egypt as he rescued them there. For the, the plagues that he set upon Egypt, they were a wonder. The parting of the Red Sea. And as the people walked across on dry land, it was a wonder. And this son, given to the world, would be a wonder, a miracle. Something, humanly speaking, not possible. That's what that word means, and that's what this story reveals. And if he was a wonder, then the only way to receive him is with wonder. That's the topic of the sermon this morning. Now, what's the opposite of wonder? What is it that we're trying to avoid or try to shake ourselves out of? Well, the opposite of wonder would be something like, yeah, 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 I've heard all of that already. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Or, of course. Yes, of course. 
and taking things for granted. But really, the only way to read these stories and to remember them and to sit around your table and to sing and to celebrate them is with this overwhelming sense of wonder and amazement and surprise and joy. And so do these nativity stories that tell of God's coming to earth and Jesus make you wonder? That's the question this morning. And we're going to walk through the text looking, text looking at it this way. We're going to see here the miracle first, and then the lesson of the miracle, and then the response to the lesson of the miracle in Mary here. It's really astounding. And all of it is anchored in this idea of Mary's wonder and her amazement. Because, of course, she goes on to sing. Uh, she's so full of wonder. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord because she's so overwhelmed by what's happening to her here. And I pray that the same thing will be true of you and I, that we'll be overwhelmed too. And so let's look together. First, let's see that really what is being told to us here is there is, this is a miraculous event. There's a miracle that is occurring here. The birth of Jesus was a miraculous birth. It's very clear. It was a virgin birth, not just improbable, but impossible by all human accounting. And the first, the first lesson is that Christianity is supernatural. I mean, for the better part of the 20th century, biblical scholars worked hard to explain away all the supernaturalism of the Bible because they said that modern people, like you and I, sensible people, will only believe what can be scientifically proven. And what we've already seen is that it was a fool's errand because if you strip away all of the supernaturalism from Christianity, there's no Christianity left. The only way to believe is to come face to face with the supernatural, with the parts of our faith that make no sense apart from God's supernatural intervention into the world and into our lives. And so if you're watching or listening and you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity, let me say there's no way around. There's no way around the supernatural elements of Christianity. And it all begins with this story right here. The angel Gabriel coming to Mary with news that she would have a baby that would be the king of the world, the king the world had been waiting for, but one problem. There was just one problem, one hiccup, one hitch. She was a virgin. Now, the kids aren't in here. Parents, I'll let you explain that to them later. It's not my job to do that. You'll have to explain why that's such a big deal, but it is a big deal. She'd never been with a man. She was just a baby herself. Probably in her early teens. Scholars say somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. And so you can understand her question when the angel brings this news to her. Well, look at what she says. Verse 34 is really where we pick up. She says, okay, how? I mean, how, how will this be? I, I don't have categories to understand how this is going to take place the way you say it would be because she understood it would be a miracle. And the angel responds, and let's read it again in verse 35. He says, this is how the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, what exactly does that mean? And I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know that I can explain it. I don't know that I should even try to explain it. But that doesn't mean it isn't true. God would create life in the nothingness of Mary's virgin womb. That would be the seed of of the new creation in the same way that at the beginning he created all things from nothing. That's what it means. God creates ex nihilo from nothing and the result would be God in embryonic form in the womb of a Jewish teenager. 
the Son of God. The child would be God himself wrapped in human flesh. This is what Christianity claims. And I hope that your silence is just stunned awe because that is the way that we should feel. There's no way around this. You might not understand it. I don't understand it. But we have to believe it because the rest of Christianity is depending upon what I've just said being true. It says that this child there, verse 35, would be holy. And so Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, as we read a minute ago, was also born of God, not inheriting the sin nature of Adam, the first man, and so able to redeem those under the law. That's what Paul talks about there in Galatians 4, but there's a lot of theology condensed in those verses. So let me say it this way, to save us from our sins, Jesus would die upon the cross, but in order to make us righteous, he would live a perfect life of obedience to God from his very first breath to his last. That was his mission, to win for you and I, for all who believe in him, a righteousness that he could then give to us as a gift. We are not just forgiven, friends. We are delighted in, do you know that? The good news of Christianity is not just that God kind of forgives our sin and puts up with us. The good news of Christianity is that he delights in us. We are deeply loved. We are sons and daughters, not slaves. Because Jesus did not only take upon himself the punishment for our sins, he has also given to us his perfect record of righteousness, his perfect record of obedience. And the virgin birth is not a sentimental story. It's deep theology. It's an absolute necessity for the rest of Christianity to be true. All of the miracles to come in Jesus' life were because he himself was a miracle. And if you believe, if you've come to him uh, in repentance and faith, and if you believe, if you're a Christian, then you're a miracle. A person becoming a person who believes is something not possible with human effort or striving. It's something that God must do. God has supernaturally worked in your life to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life, replacing your deadness with a beating heart of repentance and faith. And it's a miracle. And it should cause you to just stand before him and say, this is amazing. There should be no of courseness about that. Are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. I mean, look at all the good things I do. No, are you a Christian? Yes, and I can't believe it. It's a miracle. And so we see the miracle. You're a miracle. But the second thing is the lesson. What's the lesson of the miracle? And it's there at the end of the passage as Mary starts to go back and forth with the angel. And the angel finally says in verse seven, uh, verse 37, excuse me, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's, that's the lesson. If this is a miracle, if this is something God does, if he steps into time and space in power, then truly nothing is impossible. You see, secularism leaves God out of things which narrows the possibilities to only what we can observe and predict. But if materialism is a worldview, as we've kind of come to believe, if, but if in fact it is wrong, if God is in fact, well, let me say it this way, if God in fact is, and not only that, if he has come into the world, if heaven and earth are now intermingling, then nothing is impossible. Sin if you want to define it, is living without God. It's that simple. It's leaving God out of your life. And you can do that intentionally. You can do it unintentionally. I mean, you can read these stories and you can say, you know, it's just too much. I don't buy it. Or you might say, okay, I believe, but then you walk away and you functionally live as if it's not true. You see how we all do this, right? I mean, if you're crippled by fear, for example, or 
if you're a control freak and micromanaging everybody in your life, whatever your sin struggle might be, dig down deep enough. And what you'll eventually hit, if you dig through the sand, you'll eventually hit the hard, the hard stuff underneath the sand. And, and when you dig, what you'll find, what you'll come to eventually is unbelief. There'll be some place in your heart where you're living as if these things are not true. Some place down deep in there where God is not the greatest reality. Or something else is taking his place. There are echoes of this story in the story of Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac in the Old Testament scriptures. If you remember that story, Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. Sarah was not a virgin, but she was barren. And, and not only barren, but as the story unfolds, far past childbearing years. So it was a physical impossibility for her to have children as well. And yet an angel came to them. And God promised them a son. But if you remember, unlike Mary here at first, they did not believe. Sarah laughed, actually. She scoffed. And the angel said, kind of confronted her in that moment and said, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So why did Sarah laugh? Well, it was an expression of her unbelief. In her imagination, God was no match for her barren womb. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah's answer was yes. I mean, her circumstances were the greater reality in her heart. Not God, not his power to save, not his heart for her and her sadness and loss. It was a rhetorical question the angel asked there. Not because the answer was in doubt, but because it sat upon her heart as a question that needed an answer. And so he was the angel's inviting her into faith. And it can sit upon your heart and my heart that way too. You can linger with uncertainty about this question that is now not a question but a reality. And I find that people don't question God's power the question really is not, can God do something or can God do this? Is he able? Is he powerful enough to do it? The, what I find is that people have no problem believing in God's power, but they have a problem believing God's heart. They have no problem believing that God can do amazing things, just not for them, for whatever reason. But you come to this passage in Luke chapter 1, and you see it's the same, it's the same phrase, but it's not a question it's now a statement. It's not, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's now, nothing is too hard for the Lord. You see that? Nothing is impossible with God. There's no circumstance that's greater than his power to rescue. There's no sin that's greater than his heart to forgive and love. There's no future threat that he cannot overcome. There's no past failure that he cannot redeem. Nothing is impossible with God. And the Advent theme for today is faith. And faith is bringing your whole life <clears throat> into alignment with this truth. Now, I've illustrated this, Andy, if we have that slide ready. And here's the way I would say it to you. My eyes are so bad, I can't see it back there in the back. But if you see the difference between unbelief, if you see unbelief on, in the one, on the one side and faith on the other, faith is taking the questions you might have about God's power and love and replacing the question marks with exclamation points. It's that simple because of what you're confronted with here in Luke chapter 1. So unbelief is, is blank too hard for the Lord? And then you have, is God's power, question mark? God's heart, question mark? God, question mark? What can I rely upon? What can I, what can I you know, what can I really believe him to, to do? And what happens with faith is faith turns all of the question marks into exclamation points. It's not, 
It's not God's power, question mark. It's God's power, right? It's not God's heart. It's God's heart. It's not God. It's, <laughs> I don't even know how to do it. I don't know how the inflection works, but you know what I'm trying to do, right? It's not, you know, God, really? It's God, Unbelief means there's always a question mark with God. And you have to dig deep into your heart sometimes to find it. But faith, faith is all exclamations. God, exclamation point. And living by faith and not by sight will change the way you look at the world. Charles Taylor, who's written the definitive book from a Christian perspective anyway on, about secularism, he uses the word disenchantment to describe the way that our modern thinking has flattened out the world we live in so that there's no mystery or romance, no magic left in the world. And so there is no imagination about what might be possible. And there's evidence that suggests that we are becoming weary and bored and truly bothered by a world without God. A New, York, a New Yorker article from a number of years ago described, this was almost 10 years ago now, how, how many people no longer believe in God but they miss him. And how secularism is really a predicament and not an achievement. And unbelieving people are writing about this now. And then along comes this story in Luke chapter 1 and it challenges this notion. It says that the world, no, no, the world is indeed an enchanted place. There is magic. And I trust you know what I mean when I use that word. Right? C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien were so keen to write fantasy stories and they said that you should read fantasy not as an escape from the real world, but as a reminder of how things really are. That God has come, folks. Heaven walked upon the earth, leaving footprints for us to follow. The Spirit who created land and water and sky at the beginning is once again creating a new world in the midst of the old. Something magical is happening here. You with me? Don't have muggle eyes that can't see it. Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, made the point that the miracles of Jesus, that Jesus would go on to do many miracles in his life, he said that when, when Jesus healed the sick and when he raised the dead, that these were not supernatural miracles in a natural world, but rather they were the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. It's a really profound point. In other words, the incarnation, this story, of this baby born, God himself come into the world. The incarnation means that the natural world is supernatural because God is here. And therefore nothing is impossible. And that means that we should expect great things from God. Those are William Carey's words. William Carey, who was the founder of the modern missionary movement, he unleashed, in his, his faith unleashed a, a worldwide evangelistic movement that really really caused the world to take shape the way it has today and for Christianity to spread throughout the world. And I probably shouldn't take credit for his words, but perhaps that is the best definition of faith, to expect great things from God. Because you know, if God is here, the world is an enchanted place. Anything's possible. And so that's the lesson, that we should be people who expect great things from God. But let's see finally, as we come to a close this morning, the response. Because how should we live then? In light of this story, what does it look like? What does it look like to expect great things from God? Well, William Carey actually said this. There's another little part to his famous phrase. He said, expect great things from God, semicolon, attempt great things for God. 
Those who are expecting great things from him will be those who attempt great things for him. And our school uh, does ads in the back of the yearbook for graduating seniors. And we had a son graduate two years ago and then one this year. And, and those words from William Carey are the words that we uh, have put in those ads. They're, they're the words we, we want to send our kids off to college with because it's how I've tried to live my life and it's how I want them to live theirs too. To be people who are expecting great things from God and attempting great things for him. And when your whole life comes into alignment with what Christmas reveals to be true of God, then you find yourself saying yes. Well, to what question you ask? To every question. To every demand that he might make of you. No matter how big or scary or costly it might be, just like Mary does here. I mean, look at Mary. Her response is the only rational response, but it still is, is marvelous. It's, it's, it's amazing the way she responds. And Tim Keller preached from this text in a sermon he called The First Christian, <laughs> which is catchy because he said Mary was the first Christian. The Old Testament saints had some idea about the Savior who had come, but she was the first person to hear the gospel in the form that we have it today. And therefore, she was the first Christian. And therefore, her response is the right response to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. It's the way that all, all people who believe, that all real Christians should respond to Christmas. And so if, if we look at the way she responds, we can have some ideas about whether or not we're Christians or not. Whether or not her faith has really taken root in us. And there are really two things. Mary speaks twice in this text. And so there are two parts of, of her response. And the first time it was with a question. So you see there again in verse 34, how will this be, she says. And if you, if you, re if you read Luke 1 in one setting, you'll know that this is not the first time this question has been asked. Earlier in the chapter, Zechariah, who is the husband of Elizabeth, he also asked how. Because an angel came to him promising his son. His wife, Elizabeth, was not a virgin, like, but she was barren, just like Sarah. And they were both weary from hoping for a child for so many years. Cynicism and despair had set in. And just as they had begun to make peace with their circumstances and to overcome the, the, the wounded parts of their hearts, an angel showed up making promises about a supernatural pregnancy and saying this, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And it was really too much for Zechariah. He had gotten used to his cynicism and his doubting. And he said, how? That's chapter 1, verse 18. And it's honest enough. I mean, you can understand his curiosity, but he was rebuked by the angel and struck so that he could not speak as an act of judgment because his how was a lack of faith. He was scoffing in unbelief, just like Sarah. But fast forward to Mary, another angel making promises about a supernatural pregnancy, and Mary said, how? That's here in verse 34, but her how apparently was very different. Her how had elements of doubt and confusion and curiosity, but came from a very different place. And so we have to have a very nuanced view of what it means to wrestle with just the supernatural implications of our, of our faith and, and the way that it can be hard to really maneuver your mind around the implications. And so Tim Keller, uh, not in that sermon, but in a, in a book uh, called um, Hidden Christmas, I think is the name of the book, he, he talks about this and he says, in many circles, skepticism and doubt are considered an absolute good. I mean, right, that's what you should be doing. In conservative and traditional religious circles, any and all questioning or doubting is thought to be bad. You might be told you shouldn't doubt, just have faith. 
He says, but what you have in the Bible and what you see in this interplay between Zechariah and Mary, you have in the Bible is neither view. There's a kind of doubt that is a sign of a closed mind, and then there's a kind of doubt that is a sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers. Some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. Mary's faith is tenuous here, but Mary is full of faith. She's not void of it. And really what you see is not doubting as much as she's full of wonder and reverence and genuine curiosity because she understands the implications of what the angel's claiming. So Albert Einstein, he said, there are only two ways to live your life. The one is as if nothing is a miracle. The other is as if everything is a miracle. And that distinguishes Zechariah and, and Elizabeth and Mary perfectly, I think. And we should be the latter. People who are experiencing and living life as if everything we come across is a miracle. And you know, the truth of Christmas is really st- starting to settle into your heart when you're full of amazement. When it's a wonder. Right? It's a wonder here, right? This is a wonder, and therefore we should be full of wonder, like Mary. Not cynicism and despair and closing our hearts off because of the wounds of disappointment and loss, but, but we should be people of curiosity and hope because God has broken through the veil that separates heaven and earth, and therefore nothing is impossible. And the person who believes that goes around saying, hmm, I wonder what he might do next. The second time Mary speaks... It's with the full understanding of what God is about to do. She's full of wonder and amazement, curiosity, surprise. But also, she has this amazing, believing heart. She fully understands exactly what God is asking of her, and she's all in. Look there, verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Isn't that amazing? Uh, This past summer, we got to spend a week in North Carolina, and one of the days we we left the place where we were staying, and we hiked up to this waterfall. It's called Turtleback Falls. It's part of a a few waterfalls in the Cashers area, and all along the trail, uh, it's pretty ominous. So I have, a, I have a photo here. All along the trail, there were signs like this. Andy, could you put that up? And I can't read it from back there, but danger. People have died here. And did you see the, the little line at the very bottom? Don't be the next victim. <laughs> so, so, Ashley, we have teenage kids, right? And so, we're, and, and that, that's... In cases like this, that's a good thing. Leave that up, Annie, if you don't mind. Uh, it can be a good thing, also be a bad thing, because with little kids, you just never know. You got. I mean, they're not. They don't know enough. My kids know enough, but think, oh, I'm. I can do it, right? And so Ashley's telling us, stay out of the water, stay out. Anyway, so we. Uh, you. There's one place though, as you go up, where. <laughs> Despite all of these signs you've seen all the way, you actually, and there were people in the water, and you can get in the water, and it's actually, it's called Turtleback Falls, and it's this place where uh, the river comes, and it's like a sliding rock. Do you guys know sliding rock in North Carolina? And this one is like a sliding rock that goes out over this ledge, and then you drop about 15, 20 feet into the water below. And people were doing it, and so, of course, my older teenage boys were like, we're doing it. Uh, and, uh, and so, and really, so we got out there to do this, and the rocks were really slick, I mean, you could easily fall and hurt yourself. I mean, even in the swimming hole at the bottom, it kind of falls into this little hole. It was really, the current was fast. And, uh, and so we all stood there for a moment. And we thought, do we do it? You know, it's dangerous. There's the sign that said we could die. 
And that only adds to the excitement. And we did it, right? And we all survived. Now, there was this little boy who was too young. And, and I had gone over, uh, and he came down after us. And I, I just, have you ever had those moments where you're like, I could just see it coming? I was like, oh, no, this is not good. And this little boy, without his mom or dad, who were up on a rock behind us, went over. And uh, he came down after us, and I'm, I, hand to God, I literally saved his life. I mean, you are looking at a real-life hero, okay? <laughs> I was in the swimming hole at the bottom, and this little boy came over, and he got sucked down into the current up against this rock, and I'm screaming at my boys who are closer to him, and I swam out there and pulled him out. I mean, I barely made it to him. I was pretty scary, but it adds to the legend, right? Now, honest confession, I was the last one to get in the river. <laughs> All of the kids went in ahead of me. I kind of inched out there on my hands and knees, you know, and then chickened out. And then went back after they shamed me enough to get me in the water. Because truly, it was scary. I mean, don't be the next victim. People die here every, you know, every year. Uh, and it would have no doubt, it would have been no doubt scary for Mary. I mean, you know, in some small measure, that's what Mary must have been facing. There was a real cost. It was not going to go well for her if she said yes. It put her in great danger, and yet, no hesitation, she jumped in and let the river take her away because she was full of faith and not fear. And that's, that's the way I want to live. It's why, it's why I, I slid off the rock into the pool. I want to live with that kind of an obedient heart that says, God, whatever you want, whatever you ask, wherever you want to take me, I'm yours. Here I am. Do with me as you will. May it be done to me according to your word. Now I just want to pause for a minute and just ask, now where, where as you start to contemplate that, where does your imagination immediately go? What is right there that bubbles up to the surface for you? And I tell you, listen to that because that might be the spirit stirring you. I feel pretty confident that your assignment will not be the same as Mary's. But it will probably be just as costly, just as dangerous. And you got to jump. I mean, be the next victim. Right? Be the next victim. Uh, there have been a number of times in my life where I've been confronted with things like that, not, not physical dangers, but just having to move into areas of obedience that were really costly. Years ago, as I did, uh, as I started, a, I started a ministry that sent me around the world helping pastors, and it was a really scary time for our family, and I remember going to the beach to really be with the Lord, and he brought me to this text. And out of that, I, uh, I just wrote, not a poem, but just some reflections on, what, on this just word, let it, on this phrase, let it be to me according to your word. I shared it with you a number of years ago, and somebody like had it put on a piece of wood that's now in my office. It's really pretty. So whoever did that, thank you. I still don't know who did that, but um, I want to share it to you again. Uh, this is kind of my own reflection on Mary's obedience here. In times of pain, in turmoil and suffering, if friends desert me, if people call me crazy, if they leave me and forsake me, you never will. I rest in your sovereign care. Let it be to me according to your word. If it means I lose, 
if it means I'm left behind, if it means loss, what you ask of me is good. Let it be to me according to your word. Take away every rebellious impulse, every selfish desire, any sense of ownership over my life. Take away any deed that I might possess to my rights, my comfort, to pursue my, the pursuit of my happiness. Every protestation, every arrogant assumption, strip me of my sense of privilege, my arrogance, my defiant self-determination, the reflex of self-preservation. Let it be to me according to your word. Without hesitation, without reservation, without question, let it be to me according to your word. You spoke, and the world came into being. Stars were born. You spoke, and Lazarus came forth from his tomb. Your word brings dry bones to life. Let it be to me according to your word. I exist for you. You don't exist for me. I am your creation. You are my creator. I am your servant. You are my king, my lord, my captain. You know better than I do. You love better than I do. You save better than I do. Let it be to me according to your word. See, if Christianity is true, if these stories are true, then it's, it's the most important thing in the world. If it's not true, it's not important at all. We should just shut the doors, turn off the lights, go home. We're wasting our time. But if it's true, it's a life-rearranging truth. It's the most important thing in the world. The only thing that it can't be is only moderately important. I mean, the truth claim of Christianity won't allow for that. It's too big. It's a wonder. And therefore, the only way to live it is with wonder. And wonder acknowledges that what God has done is so much bigger than you might imagine at first. And therefore, what he might ask or require of me is so much bigger than I might expect at first. But it's okay. It's okay. Because truly, nothing is impossible with the Lord. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father... We marvel. We marvel at what we celebrate and sing about this morning. Your coming in the person of Jesus into the world to rescue and to save and to deliver us. And yet, at the same time, we would confess to you that's, that there's a sense in which our hearts can remain cold. They can remain stony. Where we, instead of marveling the way we should, where we can be passe where we can have uh, an of-courseness about us or where we can give in to the wrong kind of skepticism and doubting. And I pray, Father, that you would just deliver us from all of that. This wonder is not something that ultimately we can produce in ourselves. It's something that your spirit must come. And so, Holy Spirit, uh, we preach to the bones and we call for the wind. And so where we are still like dry bones this morning, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you blow upon us? The little embers of faith that might be true of our lives, would you blow your great breath upon them and light and ignite a fire that would be a fire in our hearts? That we would become people like Mary who would turn to you in all that we celebrate and say, Lord, you are the great, you are the great thing, not whatever present is waiting for me under the tree. You are the great joy of life. May it be to me according to your word. May we be people like that, Father, that might go from this place and glorify you in the lives that we live for the sake of your good name, your great name. But we need for you to resuscitate us in many ways. We need for you to 
break through our fear and our doubting and our cynicism and our despair and to give us wonder and joy and awe and reverence and curiosity and faith. These things are gifts, so would you come in these moments. Grant them to us, your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The starkness of that song is very fitting um, because um, of when you're when you're overwhelmed, when you're really truly full of awe, it is almost as if you can barely, you know, when you try to talk and it just kind of squeaks. All you can manage is a squeak. The thing about the word wow, think about the word wow. And Lamont's written that the word wow is really this, when, when you're so overwhelmed that you're really without words, all you can utter is this one syllable. Like this one, you can barely get this one syllable out, right? And that really is the posture of heart that I pray that we are, you know, are feeling in this moment and that we would go with now. But the true, the true promise of this benediction is because of the words I pronounce over you as you go, whatever it is, whatever despondency, whatever frustration might be awaiting you, whatever trial or test, whatever it might be, we go with these words ringing in our ears knowing that because of Jesus and because of the promise that God makes to us now in Jesus Christ, truly nothing is impossible. Amen? Because, because of Jesus, he's turned his heart and his face toward you, to bless you, and to be with you, and that's what these words mean. So receive them as a great promise, and go in faith, uh, saying, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.